Hello, you're listening to the Duke Law Podcast from the Duke University School of Law. I'm Lee Reiners, lecturing fellow and executive director of the Global Financial Market Center at Duke Law. This episode has been selected from our regular schedule of guest speakers, panel discussions, and scholarly conferences. I hope you enjoy it. Professor Fletcher, I'm going to start with you. Analysts would say that the current stock price, even, even having fallen so much in the last couple of days, uh, bears essentially no relationship to its fundamentals. And so uh, the company's cash flows do not justify the current valuation. And clearly the Reddit folks were uh, encouraging uh, buying of the stock. So a, a fair question is, are we, are we worried about these people? Do we think that they might end up in jail for uh, violating the securities laws? What, what can you tell us about that? Sure. So, you know, it's it's undeniable that uh, GameStop and AMC and the other ones that you showed that we've talked about um, or that has been have been spoken about on Wall Street Bets, that they uh, their fundamentals don't match their current share prices. Right. That's there's nothing um, you know controversial in that statement. Uh, but what's really interesting is everyone wants to think of this as some form of market manipulation, right? Because of that kind of disconnect between uh, the fundamentals and the share price. Uh, but from a legal standpoint, market manipulation requires more, right? Than that kind of disconnect between the fundamentals and the share price. And so when we think about what's been going on on uh, the Reddit boards and um, with GameStop, um, and we want to think about whether or not this is market manipulation. Manipulation. There are two key points that really we have to con- contemplate to see whether or not there's some kind of violation of the securities laws. The first one is, was there any fraud engaged? Uh, was there any fraud as a part of what was going on with this meteoric rise of GameStop's uh, stock price? Um, and I've never, ever been on Reddit, I, I <laughs> just to show who I am. And so that would tell you even more. So I have no idea what goes on Wall Street bets. Um, but based on what I have seen uh, reported about what's being said on these boards, um, I cannot, this doesn't really meet that level of fraud, right? So the, what we're normally looking for when we're talking about fraud related to market manipulation is that we're normally looking for some kind of misinformation, uh, misstatements, right, uh, as to what's going on with the company. Uh, we're thinking like your classic pump and dump scheme where you spread uh, misinformation about what's going on with a stock or the company, uh, that stock rises, uh, somebody then offloads all their shares and the stock plummets. That's not what's going on here, right? So it does not, what's going on with GameStop does not fit the classic pump and dump um, situation. So. We're not seeing that kind of fraud, um, even on the boards, even if with everybody saying, you know, game, you know, GameStop, we should all buy it because it's undervalued. That's not that level of fraud that we're looking for, those kind of material misstatements. The second thing that's really key to manipulation is intent. Uh, so there needs to be some kind of manipulative intent, right? That level of intent, whether it's specific or recklessness or something, but there has to be that kind of intent to manipulate the price or that intent to uh, engage in manipulative conduct. And again, based on what um, I've has been reported as being said on these Reddit boards or what's happened there, um, that intent, I believe, is probably missing, right? Without more, right? So I'm not going to say definitively, right? Because I don't know. Um, and so I think what's going on now is that the SEC is combing through all this data. They're combing through these trades. They're combing through what's been said. They're combing through what's been done in order to kind of see if they're able to find those key um, those key elements that they would need in order to hold someone liable for that market manipulation or for fraud or something along those lines. Um, And, you know, maybe there is something there, but generally based on what we've heard so far, I think it's going to be a real difficulty for the SEC to kind of make that case. Thank you. Uh, Professor Strauss, so the, um, you know, one, one group that hasn't been talked about much is the companies themselves. So GameStop and AMC and so on, and, and put us in their shoes for a second from a, from a securities law standpoint and maybe just a psychological standpoint. So what, if anything, do the issuers themselves need to worry about when their stock price is so high and so divorced from the fundamentals? Um, can the executives buy and sell stock during this time? Can they raise a bunch of new capital? Um, what, if anything, do they need to disclose about what's going on in their stock? Any thoughts on that? Sure. So if you are an issuer, if you are GameStop or if you are AMC or Nokia or Bed Bath & Beyond, you are really in kind of an interesting spot right now. Um, you own this company and your share price is skyrocketing, right? And people really want to buy your stock. And you might rationally want to capitalize on this and sell them some stock. 
Um, and there are mechanisms in place for this very purpose, right? There are at the market offerings um, where issues your shelf registration and they take down securities at the market price. And these are designed for exactly this, right? To, en to enable issuers to take advantage of market windows. Um, and I think it is probably indisputably true that if you are one of these issuers, you would think, oh my gosh, this is an amazing market window. Um, there are some problems with this, right? Um, first, you might miss the window. And so that's sort of a risk that you take anytime you do something like this. Um, but more specifically, for these particular issuers, you're in kind of an uncomfortable position because you, along with, as Gina Gale was saying, you know, presumably most of the rest of the market, um, know that your current fantastic stock valuation is not actually based on how good your business is. Um, and so, you know, let's be real, probably what's going to happen is that eventually there will stop being such frenzied buying of these stocks. Um, this has already started to happen. And the price will go back down to something that more realistically reflects the value of the company. And potentially that means it could go down pretty far. Um, and then the people who bought it from you as the issuer when the price was high will be upset and they might want to sue you. Um, and so from a practical legal perspective, if you are an issuer and you do decide to do an offering to take advantage of these share prices, you need to be super, super careful about what you say. Um, there cannot be anything in your offering materials or in the statements that you make that sound remotely anything like, why yes, this wild enthusiasm for our company is justified by our sound business model. Um, you cannot have anything that sounds remotely like that. Um, and in fact, if you say anything, it might behoove you to say something more like, you know, there is no material information to account for this delightful share price that we are experiencing. Um, and this, again, is sort of counterintuitive because it's not usually the kind of thing that you say when you are trying to sell something. Um, but you really here as an issuer want to avoid even the appearance of selling securities um, whose value you know to be inflated under false pretenses. Um, Similarly, if you are an insider in one of these firms and you want to sell your stock, you would have to do so very, very, very carefully um, to avoid even the appearance of trading on material, non-public information. And based on the information that I was able to find, um, it looks like a lot of GameStop, GameStop insiders sold a bunch of shares um, before the market went crazy. I believe the last sale I saw was on January 15th, and it was for something like $30 a share. Um, so people generally, it seems, are... are not doing this so much. Um, one of the things that I want to talk about, and you mentioned that AMC is getting a lot of airtime right now, and one of the reasons for that is because it is one of the meme stocks that actually did capitalize on this crazy evaluation um, and has done pretty well out of strategically managed issuances during this time. Um, they raised about $500 million in equity and another $400 million in debt. Um, they launched an at-the-market offering. Um, they had about $600 million in convertible bonds um, that the holders actually converted into stock. And that, if you are AMC, that's fantastic for your balance sheet. Um, and the great thing about this for AMC in particular is that before all of this hoopla, um, it was warning investors that it was on the brink of bankruptcy. Um, and so this has actually gone kind of away to um, pulling it back from the abyss. Perfect. Thank you. So, Jim. Um, let's step back a little bit and, and quite apart from the issue of, you know, whether there were any legal problems with what the Reddit crowd did, let's think a little bit about the policy issues and in particular the, the regulator who is very much in the spotlight right now, the SEC. What, what sort of regulatory problems do you think this uncovered, if any, and, and what would you recommend the SEC do as next steps, both in the short term and maybe the longer term? Well, the, the, the first regulatory problem was just solved the other day, that finally the Democrats and the, and the Republicans in the Senate have agreed to operating rules so we can get the committees up and running. And what we and the relevance of that, this conversation is the banking committee can now start holding hearings on the appointment of a new chairman. And until a new chairman at the SEC happens, it's very hard to believe uh, and, and who, who needs to make certain appointments divisions. There's, there's nobody heading up trading in markets. So the issue we're looking at is in the bailiwick, the, the, the expertise of the trading and markets division, where we have lots of students, by the way, and uh, we don't have a head there, and we, we don't have a head of the SEC. So once that gets into place, they can start doing the rational thing and start thinking about, well, what went on here? So um, uh, Gina, and to a lesser extent, um, Emily, we're talking about from more of an enforcement perspective, I would say, let's think about the SEC's mission really is more regulatory, and enforcement's kind of a byproduct. 
And that is that the SEC has lots of power uh, to prescribe conduct, regardless of whether that conduct is intentional or not, quite frankly. Uh, uh, and, and whether that would make a case for intentional manipulation. So to be able to move forward here and think about what the problems are, SEC needs to be calling on all of its economists, et cetera, to essentially reconstruct the market. I think that's gonna be pretty easy here because so much I'm speculating here, but reconstructing the market is, here are the questions we wanna know. We wanna, we wanna know how many of the purchases that were occurring during this run-up were the result of having to close out short positions by the hedge funds who had been selling, for example, GameStop short. So we need to know that, how much momentum did that provide? But we also need to know how much of the momentum, upward price momentum, was a result of individuals buying uh, options, okay? And then executing those options. And that, that created a demand for the stock to be able to cover the options, okay? And then we can trace, options are really great because it's pretty damned easy to reconstruct the market when you're dealing with options, okay? Then when you're dealing with shares. Uh, so we can recon reconstruct the market and figure out how much of momentum was, was provided by the covering the shorts versus the exercise of the option. Then how much of the trading was provided by other kinds of purchases and more particularly from these discount brokers. Remember the model of the discount brokers, okay? Is they don't charge anything, okay? So they make, you know, they're not a utility. They make money by payment for order flow. So it's pretty easy to go into the data uh, and, uh, and, and reconstruct the market for how many of these orders came from Robinhood, E-Trade, you know, Ameritrade, whatever it is like that, the discount brokers to figure that out. And then you can figure out who the hell those accounts are. Well, when, once we have an idea about that, oh, the other thing we need, we need to find out information about is whether Robinhood's telling the truth. I mean, with, 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 with it's, it was it just trying to cover the cash demands of the clearinghouses, okay? Or was it also experiencing the following? So if, if, if you're an individual and you have an option to buy a thousand shares and you exercise that option, okay? And then all of a sudden the stock price goes down. You're not gonna feel very good about paying money to buy a stock that's declined in value from the price you had to pay for it, okay? So how many, how many broken trades did we find, for example, uh, Robinhood, E-Trade, et cetera, experiencing so that they had to then front that money themselves, okay? Uh, uh, and, and so that is a very good question. But nonetheless, we need, we need to give a lot of thought about how much of Robinhood's cash problems were a result of a, just a clearing process. And that's gonna be very reassuring because this is the closest we came to the, to the phenomena that we saw in 2008 and 2009 that jacked up all the requirements for clearing, particularly for derivative securities. And to be good to really see how well that system works and whether it needs to be tweaked independent of, of GameStop or AMC or anything else like that. So there's a lot of great empirical questions there. Now, the question is, uh, do you want to get into the question now, Elizabeth, about uh, the path forward or you want me to just shut up? No, let's talk path forward. Lee is going to talk about the clearing and settlement. So we've got yeah. that covered. Okay, so that's good. I'm not going to, but the path forward may look something like this. I've been talking to a lot of traders about this and that is, you know, we need to re-examine this whole process about who, who can get uh, leverage. You know, leverage you can get, get by margin, okay? But also leverage you can get by have, uh, buying options rather than just uh, trading in the stock itself. And maybe we ought to have some callers on that in terms of uh, qualifying in terms of what your capital is, okay? And, you know, all of these are things that are clearly within the SEC's path to prescribe. Uh, and, and my guess is that, We've never been at a point where we've had a incoming chairman of the SEC who was more qualified to take on these questions. I mean, you know, the, the snarking about Gary Gensler is that sort of holding your nose, pinching your nose, saying, well, you know, he's not really a securities lawyer. He doesn't look at these disclosure issues about what has to happen if you have a merger and acquisition or a private equity trend. He doesn't really know about you know, regulation SK and stuff like that but he does know about trading in markets, okay? Because that's where he spent 20 years as the youngest partner ever at Goldman Sachs, okay? So you've never had somebody who was better. And in fact, he was the guiding spirit for so many of the changes we saw in clearing in, in, uh, clearing process that we saw in 2008. So we're at, we're at a good crossroad. We just got to confirm this person and, and, and get some data. And then we'll figure out what the problems were and figure out how to correct it. Great. So to, to summarize, one of your practical recommendations would at least be for the SEC to consider whether to limit retail investors' use of leverage in purchasing 
stock or derivatives. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Thank you. Great. So um, I, I am going to play the role of the bad guy here. I, I'm going to get some hate mail myself. So what, what I would like to do is, is defend somewhat the hedge funds here. So it's one of the interesting things here is the very differing uh, driving forces behind the Reddit crowd. I think there were lots of different motivations for what was going on. But it's pretty clear that at least some of the motivation was to get back at the hedge funds that were shorting GameStop's <laughs> stock. And so the, the starting point that we could have here is a discussion of whether hedge funds shorting GameStop's stock actually hurts GameStop. And I'd like to give you the short answer, which is really no. So uh, one thing that's confusing for people for whom this is not their bread and butter is that all of this buying and selling of stock and buying and selling of derivatives relating to the company's stock is happening on the so-called secondary markets. That is to say, we're buying and selling from each other. None of that money is going to the company. So when the company goes through, for example, an IPO, that's when they raise a bunch of capital. Or if they sell bonds, they, they raise a bunch of capital. But when people are trading in their stock or people are trading in derivatives on their stock, that actually does not directly affect the company's cash flows at all. The company doesn't get any money when people buy its stock. The company doesn't lose any money when people short its stock. Okay, so in fact, uh, the, the hedge funds that are shorting GameStop stock don't affect the company's cash flows directly in any way. Uh, and the folks buying GameStop stock don't affect the company's cash flows directly in any way. So one point here is that if, if these folks really want to help GameStop, their best bet is by far is to just write the company a check uh, or to go out and buy some of the products as opposed to uh, purchasing the stock and trying to get back at the hedge funds. So let me just show a quick uh, slide here. This is GameStop's profits um, leading up to the, uh, this is sort of pre-pandemic. You can see that there's already signs of big trouble for GameStop, okay? Uh, the company was not doing well. And so the, the sort of mantra that I'd like to repeat here is that shorting doesn't cause companies to fail. It's the other way around. Right. If you are a hedge fund and you notice that a company is doing poorly, you think the company is in financial distress and that things are going to get worse and that that's not fully reflected in the current market price, then you have an incentive to short the stock to make money if the stock price falls even further. OK, but it's not the shorting that caused these problems for GameStop. It's exactly the reverse, that the, the company was in trouble and that caused funds to come in and short the stock. So uh, a classic example of this is that uh, before the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, um, we, we, the banks got in very big trouble, the big Wall Street banks. And after the fact, the CEOs of those uh, firms like to tell the story that, oh, you know, the, the financial crisis was just caused by people shorting our stocks. That's complete nonsense, right? That makes absolutely no sense. It's the exact backwards of what happened. The banks took on very risky bets, were in big trouble, and then people came in and shorted the stock, okay? So um, if shorting doesn't actually cause companies to fail, where does the sort of widespread hatred of shorting come from? Uh, I would say there are a few sources. One is just confusion about the fact that of, of whether shorting actually causes companies to fail. The second is management. So corporate management hates people who short their stock, right? Elon Musk is a classic example of this. He despises short sellers. Why? Because it's painful for their egos. If it's, it's essentially viewed as a criticism of their performance, right? It can be bad for management if, uh, if when the shorts come in, the market recognizes more than it had up to that point that the company is in trouble and the stock price falls because the executive stock options aren't going to be worth as much and so on, right? So it really is a notion that is actually pushed by the establishment, by corporate management that has caused people to question uh, short selling quite a bit. The other reason is that there is absolutely some fraud by short sellers, right? Uh, so you can imagine someone spreading a rumor, a false rumor that the company is uh, engaged in fraud or its product is going to fail, and then the stock price falls and the short sellers have made money. The answer to that is uh, most of that fraud today does not happen by the hedge funds, right? They have uh, compliance officers and things like that. It happens actually by the sort of small bit short sellers, uh, including on the Reddit crowd. 
Um, and that fraud happens in the other direction as well. People boosting stock artificially uh, as the pump and dump schemes that uh, Professor Fletcher described. And so the, the attributing that as the reason for why we should dislike short selling is a little bit misguided. So shorting can in fact perform a really beneficial role in the financial markets, right? I am not here to defend hedge fund managers. I think you know most of them qualify functionally as sociopaths, right? Uh, but the function that they serve can be quite useful, which is to say they can bring out useful information to the markets, right? So those who shorted Enron stock brought out useful information that the market was completely blind to, that there was in fact quite a bit of fraud going on within the company, right? So uh, getting more information out, ensuring, right, if the market believes what the short sellers are saying or trying to signal, then the market price of the stock will adjust and things will be priced correctly. So that's the role of short sellers. Uh, and I will stop there on that point and move on now to Professor Reiner's. So um, one thing that gets buried in all of this discussion is uh, the, the real underlying plumbing of the financial market. So people don't realize how in some sense clunky <laughs> financial transactions actually are, right? We can do things instantaneously, stock is traded in nanoseconds, but there's a lot of plumbing behind there, some of which is really not moving at the same speed. And that has played a big role in uh, what we've seen. So in particular, the fact that uh, when GameStop's stock price was surging, Robinhood, this discount broker through which almost everyone of uh, the retail investors is trading, um, shut down trading in GameStop stock, right? And so Lee, do you have anything to, any wisdom to share about why that happened and, and what that means about the, the plumbing of the financial markets? Yeah, so the, you know, the devil is always in the details. And so after um, Robinhood and a few other retail brokers limited their customers trading in GameStop and a few other uh, meme stocks to only um, sell orders just naturally put downward pressure on, on the share price, right? When you can only uh, sell a stock, it's natural that it's going to decline in, in price. And so when Robinhood did this, it infuriated the Wall Street bets crowd and a few other prominent social media personalities like uh, Barstool Sports Dave Portnoy. Uh, and so this led to all sorts of conspiracy theories that Robinhood had caved to pressure from hedge funds that have been losing their shirts in the, in the short squeeze. And of course, the truth is far less sinister and probably pretty boring to, to most people, if I'm being frank. Um, so when two people agree to trade a stock, um, they're exchanging cash for shares. And that contract is just the start of a complicated set of transactions. So the most critical part is what's called final settlement, where the actual securities and the cash are exchanged. And that occurs two days later. So this is called T plus two settlement. And in normal market conditions, uh, a two-day delay for final settlement um, has little consequence, but in periods of market volatility, like we saw uh, last week, two days can be a very long time, as Robinhood found out. So to see why, consider that the seller faces credit risk in the interval before settlement if the buyer goes bankrupt before the transaction is complete. So to limit such counterparty risk, a very large entity called a clearinghouse processes these transactions. And we can think of a clearinghouse as a buyer to every seller and a seller to every buyer in the market. In the case of US equities trading, the clearinghouse is the National Securities Clearing Corporation and they are a subsidiary of a, a more well-known company called Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation or DTCC. So they're the ones that settle equity trades. Now to guard against failure, DTCC requires that brokers guarantee transactions by posting collateral. That is to make sure that in two days, the promised cash will be there to complete the purchase. The broker for the buyer must have sufficient funds in an account at DTCC. So the clearinghouse determines the overall amount of collateral required depending on a combination of the broker's transaction volume, the volatility of prices, and a few other factors such as lopsided uh, buyer sell activity. So the bigger each of these factors are, the more risk that a transaction will not go through after two days, and so the more collateral is required. And that's what happened on Thursday, January 28th, DTCC announced that trading in stocks like GameStop, quote, generated substantial risk exposures at firms that clear these trades. So they raised collateral requirements by 30%. Uh, so the collateral hike compelled a number of brokers to restrict trading uh, until they raised the funds. And Robinhood was able to cover this additional collateral requirement 
by drawing down on a loan from JP Morgan and raising new capital from existing investors, but only after uh, they restricted um, trading. So the, the irony here is that, you know, despite the outrage from retail traders, the system actually worked exactly as it should have. Uh, clearing houses are arguably the most critical, most interconnected component of our financial system. And if one were to fail, the consequences would be catastrophic for the broader economy. So when this volatility materialized, you know, kind of out of thin air, it was a, it was good that DTC asked for uh, additional collateral. Great. And one one other question I have for you is, um, since you have been out there in the real world dealing with the markets for some time, is this really new? All the the Reddit crowd sort of trying to uh, band together to boost stocks and stuff and and stuff like that, dude. Are there other corners of the financial markets where we see this kind of activity? Yeah, so I, I teach fintech here at, at Duke Law, and so I cover um, cryptocurrency. And you know, a lot of what we've seen this past week with Reddit and and GameStop and and AMC, you know, has been a feature of the cryptocurrency market essentially from you know the very beginning. Um, you know, so fundamentally, an asset is worth whatever people are willing to pay for it. And what they are willing to pay for it is derived from a number of different things. So in the case of a stock, it can be based on you know, discounted cash flow analysis. It can be based on you know, some multiple of their earnings or a comparison to a similar firm. But you know, none of these methodologies apply to cryptocurrency. So why is Bitcoin worth $34,000 and not $100 or $10,000? And the reality is, is that a community of true believers in cryptocurrency has formed primarily online and created a shared narrative. And that narrative is that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are effectively digital gold uh, and they're a hedge against inflation. And this narrative is enforced by memes uh, on Twitter, uh, by you know, chat groups on Telegram, celebrities like Elon Musk. You know, and that same dynamic is essentially what happened uh, you know, the past couple of weeks with GameStop was that a community narrative was created online. And this would never have been possible without the internet, without message boards like Reddit and other chat boards. Uh, and it just drew a phenomenal number of people in who bought this narrative. And here we are. Thank you. Um, so Professor Baxter, we want to get your thoughts on several different things. So one is, you know, one question I have is, is this really an SEC problem or a Fed problem? Which is to say, is this just indicative of the fact that interest rates have been so low for so long and they've, you know, through the pandemic have gotten basically down to zero. And so we're, we sh we're in the middle of seeing what we always see when that happens, which is a big asset bubble. So um, are there sort of macro implications to this beyond just looking at GameStop and, and AMC? The second is, um, I know you and I have, have differing views on this, so I'd like you to take the opposite position, the, the sort of defending the Reddit crowd against the, the Wall Street fat cats, um, share your views on that. And lastly, given your expertise, can you say anything about the, the derivatives piece of this? What, how does that play in here? Because most of the trading that was done here was through derivatives, not necessarily directly through the stock of GameStop. Sure. <clears throat> Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, I'm, I'm all uh, three of those items, uh, in almost every respect, I agree with what everybody said before, including uh, your own views on short selling. But let me explain where I would differ in detail. Uh, so first of all, the question of the Fed or the SEC. Uh, I, I think uh, Jim is exactly right. This is going to be, to the extent that it is a problem at all, is going to be an SEC problem. And the reason I say that is that the Fed only really becomes relevant if there's some kind of systemic risk issue evolving uh, and is being caused by its easy monetary policy. Now, as most of you are aware, there is a meeting today with Janet Yellen and uh, she has staffers from the SEC and other agencies who are meeting to discuss whether there's any kind of common issue they need to be worrying about. Um, but these uh, spikes and, and, and uh, frenzied trading episodes uh, are still, as far as I can tell, so far and few between. Uh, Lee talked about the cryptocurrency. Couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I, it's the QAnon of uh, trading. Uh, the, um, 
the the uh, uh, silver um, market went nuts recently, but that's happened before, uh, um, uh, all the way back to the Hunt brothers. Um, but they are relatively insignificant, and even the GameStop and the AMC trading in the bigger scheme of things are relatively insignificant, unless there starts to emerge a clear link between the easy money chasing the prices up. Uh, that's when the Fed would become involved, and I, I, I venture to predict that after their meeting today, they will simply say they are watching it and monitoring it. I can't imagine any Fed-level action at this stage. Um, in terms of uh, options, of course, the SEC and uh, depending on the combinations, the CFTC uh, may have an interest in it. Options have, have seem to have driven some of the price increases because it's so inexpensive to buy options and walk away from them. Uh, but I would agree with, uh, with Jim that uh, Gensler is the perfect guy for this. He was head of the CFTC as well, and then he had that experience before. He, nobody knows markets as well. Or, or better than him. So I think it'll be uh, fairly well adjusted to the extent that there should be adjustment uh, by the uh, regulators. Um, as far as the um, short selling is concerned, this is where I might differ slightly, and we may actually even agree on this. Uh, I'm a, a generally a big supporter of short selling. I think it is the right way in the secondary market uh, to determine what real value is there. And I'm sure that CEO egos, which many of us have had to deal with in the past, are the real uh, source of anger. And sometimes it's countries when they're short selling of their currencies and so on. Uh, countries, uh, you know, national pride and, and so on. Uh, the part that I think's left a very bad taste in the mouth of, of, of uh, the interested public is that short selling is justified uh, because it leads to price discovery, meaning that you will find that the price of a stock that sustains, uh, that is sustained by its real value. Usually the reference is fundamentals. I'd caution you to be very careful about so-called fundamentals analysis. I read all the fundamentals analysis about GameStop and <clears throat> what stunned me was not one word about COVID. I have a personal interest in that because as a direct result of COVID, I've become a, a, a huge fan of simulated racing. And I, I needed to find a GameStop store to buy the hardware. Now, if GameStop had any strategic uh, foresight, they would also be downloading software as well. So the distinction that Jerome made between software and, uh, and, and physical stores doesn't have to be that way. Uh, so the fundamentals don't take any of that into account. Uh, and like Peloton, it could be that they were about to experience a huge boom if properly managed. I don't know. I don't have any of their stock. And I haven't really followed them before this, other than that I tried to get some hardware from them a few months ago. Uh, but ha um, having said all that, uh, what I think left a bad taste uh, in the mouth of many people is that this price discovery was all well and good. When, when uh, many traders and hedge funds, uh, they didn't quite collaborate together, but they went into short selling, including even naked short selling, which means you're selling the stock without even borrowing it, uh, and uh, to drive the price down. Now, maybe that's because they didn't believe there was anything there and the price needed to go to zero, but I rather suspect the motivation was just to make a buck out of the short sale process. And you make a buck if the price keeps dropping, of course, because you buy the stock back at a much lower price than you sold it for and, and, and deliver it back to who you borrowed it from. Uh, that was well and good. And it must have been absolutely nerve wracking for, for GameStop, uh, GameStop uh, and shareholders in GameStop. But when it turned the other way, uh, all of a sudden uh, there were howls for intervention by the SEC and uh, hedge funds in particular were starting to squawk. Uh, bloody murder is a phrase that I was raised with. Um, the irony is that the retail actions in Reddit are relatively minor. The real big buying didn't come from retail uh, traders. It came from after hours buying by hedge funds in huge volumes. So it turns out that the ones who reveled in short selling for price discovery now didn't like where the price was going. And I worry that we will have misguided efforts to regulate this when the market was working as, as Lee says, perfectly well, uh, that we may intervene to prop up uh, companies like Robinhood 
because they're unable to meet their collateral requirements when in fact, if the markets work properly, you just let them go down. That's their problem. They profit when it's good. And if they don't plan properly, they, are, they go down the tubes. But there was far more than Robinhood and Reddit, et cetera, uh, involved there uh, and Wall Street bets. There were very big hedge funds involved. Now they get, they sometimes try to get a pass by arguing that they are the professionals on Wall Street. I've taught a lot of traders, uh, uh, glorified frat boys. They don't know anything more than a lot of the Redditeers who trade uh, uh, through Robinhood. Some of them are very knowledgeable people. So we shouldn't be misled by that either. Their big advantage with the hedge funds in that is that they have vast swaths of capital that they can use uh, to muscle the market around. I'm not saying intentionally, I'm just saying that they have that advantage. So I don't even, I think this is a bit of a storm in a teacup to use an ill-fated term that uh, Jamie Dimon used over the London whale and then came to regret. I don't think uh, the markets malfunctioned until there were calls for uh, regulators to get involved. So that's my contrary view, but it's based I think on the same outlook uh, that all of you have just uh, described. Great. Thank you so much, Lawrence. So I actually want to switch now to taking questions. Uh, would love to hear from especially students who have been on Wall Street Bets and have views on what's going on and the motivations for the various trading and, and so on. So if you can use the question function in Zoom, or uh, if you prefer, you can send things through to the chat either way. Otherwise, the rest of us will just keep talking, which we are very good at doing. Ben? Uh, hello. Uh, so I guess my question is, like a lot of a lot of the stuff in the subreddit was motivated by this. There's this one poster who I'll abbreviate to DFV who bought GameStop in 2019, and it's been an ongoing running joke that he just owns an absurd amount of GameStop stock for no good reason, and everybody would just go in the comments and call him an idiot. Um, and it came out that he was also has a YouTube channel with a decent following. And he made this whole video about why he bought GameStop and why he was just holding. So before and then out of nowhere, I'm not out of nowhere, but then he started doing very well, I guess, because of these very large short positions. And then it just became a joke to, you know, like to buy GameStop and just hold no matter what happens because GameStop will never fail this guy, you know, because he's had it for X amount of years. Um, and I'm, and, and now they're calling him in to, to testify. So my, my question is, like, how, you can't, you know, you can't really accuse him of manipulating a market when he's been doing the same thing for two years. Right, so the, the that is a really, important question is, first of all, just as a practical matter, is the SEC going to try to go after the sort of ringleaders? And it seems like, you know, he is being hauled before Congress in a couple of weeks, including with the uh, CEO of Robinhood. Um, Professor Fletcher, do you want to comment on that? Is, you know, if this person really has been holding stock for a long time, does that weigh in favor of uh, not finding any market manipulation, even though he was hyping the stock throughout I mean, here's the thing, right? So it, even if he um, if he's been saying, providing his opinion on the stock, um, and this opinion is not um, some kind of misstatement or fraud, you know, that kind of hyping that we're we're really concerned about, I'm I'm not sure, right? I've never been to his YouTube channel, so I, I can't speak to what he actually says there. Uh, but having an opinion is not, um, you know, the basis for uh, market manipulation, really, right? So if he's if and if he's been holding this stock, I mean, him holding it versus him selling it, you know, you can hold the stock and make money on it, right? So whether he held it or sold it doesn't really do, isn't the telling part for whether or not this is um, this could be manipulative or he, he could have been uh, manipulated in the market. I think it's much more telling what his comments and conversations were and you, you know he's being 
call before Congress, and I'm, I'm sure his trades are being looked at very closely and his words and his actions uh, to see kind of whether that rises to the level of uh, manipulative conduct. So, you know, just that he's held it for such a long time isn't necessarily, um, you know, indicative of anything um, per se. It just shows that he's held it. And it actually, the, the other side of the argument could be, this gives him a good reason to hype the stock and make it, you know, have the price go up very high. Uh, but if if what he's saying is just providing his opinion on these things, then without more, I I would be I, I'm not sure that that would rise to the level of, of manipulation in that regard. Great. So um, Sam, I want to get to your question next, but first, um, just wanted to mention a, a great question that I got in the chat, which is this is not actually about GameStop. This is not actually about making money. This is really a social movement. This is, people are still mad about the financial crisis. They're still mad at Wall Street um, that, that all the gains are going to the 1%. And in particular, the financial sector has done extraordinarily well, whereas the sort of real economy in lots of sectors has not done as well. What is there to that? So um, Jim, I think you have a bit of an interesting perspective on this, given that you've gotten a, a bunch of hate mail from the Reddit crowd having following your recent appearances on TV. Do you want to say something about that? And maybe yeah, I, I presume I'm un unmuted. That's great. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, that was my answer two days ago. And then when I started getting this hate mail after yesterday's exposure on CNN, uh, and my inbox was filled with this stuff, I'm now leaning substantially that to that idea that this is bigger than a market manipulation area. Now that that said, that said means a couple of things. Just like the divisions we're seeing in society are not going to go away right away. And this is a, a, a part of those divisions, this is not going to go away right away. So it makes that it means that this problem is not isolated. Uh, it's going to recur. Uh, it runs a serious risk of recurring. And we need to think about the following. Do we care about that? I think we should for reasons I said earlier. Uh, but also, uh, uh, how are we going to do it? So, 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 so that would—that's the the issue there. And you know, the, the and it also goes with the remedy. The remedy is likely to be prophylactic. That is, that when you're dealing with questions of social movement, okay, that frequently the best way are is to start dealing with things uh, 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 prophylactically, okay. And we've had lots of evidence in that in society moving along. We deal. We, we deal with, with racism and we think one of the best ways of addressing that is putting people close together so you understand that we're all creatures of God, okay? And regardless of what our color or our political orientation, et cetera, like that, okay? And so we, we have integration moments, okay? And we, we've done this a lot. For example, 20, 20 years ago, we had a big problem in securities markets, which are called penny stock frauds. And what did we do? We dealt with that prophylactically. We thought the problem with penny stock frauds is that high pressure brokerage te techniques stepped in and forced uh, widows and widowers and orphans to buy stock that they would not normally buy. So the prophylactic response were a series of rules that sort of stretched out the process. So you cannot close a deal on a penny stock in any way until several days pass and several steps have to be gone through. And the result of it, the fear about penny stocks just literally has gone away. So I think that's what we're gonna be doing here like that. It's a social movement. We've got to think about, we may not be able to correct the, the, the feelings about the social movement, but we can certainly think about steps and procedures that's going to ameliorate, if not eliminate, the bad effects on price discovery and liquidity in our markets caused by what we've witnessed in the last week. Yeah, I, I guess in terms of the, the social movement, I, I feel the same way that I do about populism generally, which is people are absolutely right to be angry. There is some fundamental reason why they are angry and they're 100% about right. They're just 100% wrong about what they're asking for and how they wanna go about fixing it. So, uh, you know, is, is finance rigged? Absolutely, in, and in a thousand ways that, that these folks don't even know about. But um, by, by trading individually on Robinhood, that is not going to fix their problems. It's only going to exacerbate them, I would say. You can, you can be in the position of the Wall Street fat cat by investing in an index fund. You're going to get all the benefit of the market appreciation at essentially zero cost. Um, what they should be asking is sort of why are the financiers paying half what they are in taxes and things like that. So it's, it's, it's a really hard problem of educating people not just about how the markets work, but also about sort of 
the true injustices that underlie all of this. Uh, Sam, go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm a novice to markets, so I don't know if I'm going to use these terms correctly, but I think something I kept seeing thrown around online was this idea of uh, naked shorts. Um, I, I kept reading about the, I, the, the this number of 140% that, that I, I guess there was an excess of 100% of the shares of GME that were actually shorted. Uh, can you speak to maybe the legality of that or even what that means? Because I'm not quite sure what it means. Sure. So, Lawrence, uh, do you want to take that? So, naked shorting means that you are um, you are you're making a bet that the stock price is going to go down. But usually, the way that the most common way of doing that is you borrow the stock from somebody else, and then you sell it on the market, and you agree that after whatever period of time you're going to buy back that stock and then give it back to the person from whom you're borrowing it. So a, a naked short is when you're basically making a bet that the stock price is gonna fall, but you don't actually have uh, the stock, right? There's no sort of stock backing this up. Uh, and, and so that, that is actually the way in which the Redditors were able to make the hedge funds lose so much money, which is that there, there wasn't enough stock to back up all these bets. So as the price went up, they were getting collateral calls. So they had to come up with the stock. And so they had to buy stock and that just pushed the stock price even higher. Lawrence, do you want to say anything about the, the legality of, of naked shorting or anything else? Uh, I'm sorry, well, my camera is very bizarre. I look very holy right now. I, I don't know the broader legality, but I do know that um, many exchanges will penalize uh, naked short selling. Uh, for example, Citadel, one of the, one of the huge uh, hedge funds, uh, was fined recently by the Chicago Board of Exchange for engaging in naked short selling. Uh, obviously, there's a big risk and big companies can afford to take that risk. Uh, but if something goes wrong, and for example, they can't buy the stock to deliver, uh, then they ha have neither borrowed it, uh, nor um, are able to buy it at a price they can afford. So it's, it's, it's the sort of, it's like naked credit default swaps. It's at the riskiest end, uh, and of course, most profitable end of short selling. Um, and uh, so, I, but I think you described exactly what, what it is. Uh, Jim may know about what penalties there are for naked uh, short selling um, on, on the uh, securities exchanges. Well, certainly, certainly naked short selling and by broker dealers are is prohibited. So yeah. um, uh, we have rules about that and very clear. Uh, people unfortunately go right through many red lights <laughs> and uh, that, that's, that's, that's the problem. But you know, they get caught uh, and they get disciplined. And get this one mainly from FINRA, not by the SEC. So yeah. Uh, we have another question, Kari Yang. Hi, this question is for um, Professor Fletcher. When you're talking about market manipulation, um, I wanted to ask, um, in this case, what would manipulative intent actually look like when they're looking for it? Um, I'm thinking that, like, what I'm trying to uh, the situations that I'm thinking about are, are that you have a lot of players doing some very detailed like due diligence analyses that they post online and um, a lot of these analyses are quite detailed and they take advantage they like took took advantage of the short position explained it to everyone including how to take advantage of it including things like calling your broker to not lend out your shares after you purchase them um, and so at what point is this sharing information okay and at what point would it point to manipulative intent um especially if there is no like fraudulent element like if it was not misinformation sure so you know honestly right like just sharing information that's not incorrect is okay right so you know uh call you know the 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 things that you're describing um you know that they're they're sharing information about how they've uh, conducted their trades, um, that, that's okay, right? So we, we're not going to penalize uh, folks for that. We're not going to call that market manipulation. So what you're, what you're kind of describing, though, is this concept that I've uh, talked about in, in one of my writings, or in some of my writings, actually, is this concept of open market manipulation, right? So we're trying to manipulate the market, but we're being completely legitimate or facially legitimate transactions are what we're using to, um, to kind of create this artificial price. Um, and that's a, it's a one, it's, um, it's a, it's a type of misconduct that both commissions have gone after uh, folks for, right? Uh, they've gone after folks for um, uh, using these facially legitimate transactions in different ways, right? So maybe they're doing um, 
I've never seen a case that has the facts that you're describing there, but they don't go after folks who are probably aggressive short selling is what one of the things that they'll go after folks for, or for marking the close, meaning heavy selling at the end of the trading day that might cause the price to jump up. Neither of these trend, neither of these types of activities are per se illegal, but they might have a some kind of disparate impact on, on stock price and the commissions have gone after folks for that. The courts, however, uh, in adjudicating these types of cases um, have been pretty much um, uh, skeptical of these cases uh, a lot, right? So the courts, a lot of times when these open market manipulation cases have been brought have said, unless you can show me that the only reason that the, the traders engaged in this type of trade, uh, that the only reason that they did it was to uh, manipulate the price of the underlying stock or commodity, um, we're not gonna hold them liable. Right, and so the the burden of proof is quite high when it comes to these things, um, and uh, you know that level of intent that needs to be demonstrated. It's not impossible to demonstrate, but it's going to be quite a heavy burden on the regulators to show that uh, without more. Now we have, um, you know, we're going to have a lot of words on different boards that can be used against folks, and so possibly there will be things there like. I want to manipulate the market. I, I don't know if that will actually be there. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that, you know, extreme in order for it to be um, to be uh, a basis for liability. But, you know, we're, we're going to be looking for something fairly blatant and fairly um, obvious, especially if what we're dealing with are uh, facially legitimate transactions that we're alleging manipulated the market. Great. Uh, thank you. Christoph? And then we'll take some questions from the chat. I have a question with regard to corporate law. Um, I mean, since it's all happening on the secondary market, is there a duty of the board or you know, for boards in the situation as it was for GameStop to undertake certain actions? I mean, we talked about the possibility of raising capitals, but are there like other duties they have to, to, to undertake some actions? So Professor Strauss had to drop off. Jim, do you want to take this one? I'm not sure I understood the question. So what, what are the obligations of the, the boards of, say, GameStop under this circumstance? Do they have to put something special in their... No, I think, I think they're lawyers. Well, my, my guess they're lawyers to say, keep your mouth shut. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like you know, you, you see a domestic um, dispute going on, probably better to call the police, but stand aside or you get, you're going to... I mean, I, I think the lawyer's going to tell them they don't have any obligation. I mean... Uh, and the minute you enter into it, that it's like you uh, get uh, attached to whatever misimpressions may exist in the market and they become yours. Great. So I've gotten a lot of DMs uh, from everybody. There's a bit of a theme in, in the questions, which is, you know, what should the, you know, the SEC might do all this stuff and, and the result of that is going to be limiting retail investors' ability to trade, right? Maybe we go back to forcing brokers to charge an explicit transaction uh, transaction fee every time somebody does a trade, um, things like that. All of this is going to end up curbing retail investor trade. Isn't that unfair? Is that why people are now switching over to Bitcoin and so on? Um, what I would say to that is, again, the, the concern here is a little bit odd. It's like saying, you know, knocking at the door of the casino and saying, you have to let me in because yeah. I want a right to lose a lot of money, right? The notion that we're, we're restricting retail investors and we're preventing them from making money, that, that, that everybody else out there is making money and, and they're being uh, prevented from doing that is, is frankly, I, I think a very unfortunate narrative. So we know the performance of retail investors when they invest their own money versus when they put it, say, in an index fund. It's night and day. They do much worse. They do much worse. And so the notion that, that they're being kept from these great profits, I think, is wildly mistaken and really unfortunate. It, it is not actually, uh, it, we have lots of data on this. It, it does not work out on average for people to do their own trading. Uh, but it's it's a powerful force, you know. Since we're since it's Thursday afternoon and we're among friends, I will say something controversial, which is, I, I constantly forget how much men in particular like to gamble, and I think that's part of what's going on here. And I, I sort of wish they went back to betting on sports or something because I worry these people are really going to lose a lot of money, uh, thinking that they're actually doing something that's that's going to uh, make them a lot of money. But Elizabeth, so Elizabeth can I add a point here? Uh, Lawrence, why don't you go ahead first? 
Well, I, I have to push back on you because your last sentence actually justified why they should be allowed access. Uh, if, if you start taking the position that they should be prevented from trading for their own good in terms of monetary re returns, I think that is extremely dangerous. Uh, there are some traders who make a lot of money. Now, we know on average, as you've rightly pointed out, that they generally lose. Uh, but hey, we, we go to the casinos uh, and we regard that as a net plus. And the, as much as we deny that the markets are, uh, are uh, cons casinos, there are 10% of the population, apparently from the studies, uh, who actually get a thrill out of that. Uh, sometimes they get a, a financial reward, but they still keep doing it simply because they really think ultimately they can beat the market. And I don't know how you regulate against that without becoming uh, uh, patronizing. To, to be clear, I, I would, I'm not at all advocating making it illegal for people to trade their own money, but I think it's, it's perfectly reasonable to say broker, you know, Robinhood, instead of pretending that you're not charging anything for your services by not having any trading fees and instead getting paid for order flow, which is people are paying Robinhood to send all their orders because they know it is the dumb money and they're going to make money off of them trading on the other side. They know these are uninformed traders, right? That is a cost that these people are bearing, but they have no idea they're bearing it. They think they're getting a free service and they are absolutely not. So my view is let's make it the cost explicit, make them instead of, you know, all of this massive payment for order flow, make them charge an explicit transaction fees, uh, trading fees. So, uh, so Don, Elizabeth, I, I was going to add the following, following note on, on, on the political context. It's, it's interesting to me that uh, the issue about whether we want to wall off markets from the people is now being advanced by the Democrats, okay? Uh, uh, you know, who the, the, the more inclusive people. And it's very true that all my friends are like myself are saying that what we've seen, not just the last four years, but actually the last uh, uh, 12 years through the Obama administration and the Trump administration is opening up lots of different risky investors to the populace, which is, is not a good idea, but it's only a good idea because it makes the people who operate these funds very wealthy, okay? Yes. On the, on the other side, the Republicans are the ones pushing for the idea that we've, we, we, we've, we, we don't want to increase the meaning of an accredited investor. Uh, uh, we, want, we want to make sure that people can invest in private equity funds, yada, yada, yada. We want to have leveraged exchange traded funds, all these risky sort of instruments, okay? So, so that's what's going on. And, 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 and so the biggest puzzle for me is where Lawrence is on this whole thing. <laughs> but because quite frankly, you know, my own thinking is that gambling, maybe it's because I grew up in Kansas, the home of Carrier Nation and puritanical beliefs, okay. But I, I think gambling is, is, is a, just like lotteries, okay. Lotteries to me are the stupid people's tax, okay. And we, we it's, should it's get away from lotteries and we should get rid very of better aggressive. And markets, there's huge, my point to Lawrence, there's huge externalities to allowing gambling in markets. Yes. Uh, okay. Ultimately, we bear the cost of all of these people's lives. When they retire with no money, it will be our problem. I agree. Don, you have a question? Yeah, I was just, it seems to me like there's a, another component where, like, if, if we're going to start stepping in and regulating retail investors uh, like kind of spurned by them investing in a, in a market that we think is overpriced. Like, isn't there a sense there where we're trying to enshrine like a very small select group of these hedge fund managers and their research? Like we're just kind of collectively deciding that we're going to elevate them to this level where if somebody like this DFE guy comes along and has counter research. And even if it like seems to be somewhat correct and something that the hedge fund guys overlooked, like we're just gonna step in and allow like Robinhood and things like that to just make the prophecies of these hedge fund managers come true. It seems like we're, we're moving away from a, it's a less free market in a sense because we're giving these people this elevated position. Great. So, so it's a very nice point. This is kind of the First Amendment view. If you know, one view of the First Amendment is you should have a, a as many ideas out there as possible, and that's going to lead to the best ones kind of rising to the to the top. And and if that's a view, as long as it's not fraud, you should let everybody weigh in on on what is the correct value of the security and stuff like that. Um, Lee, do you want to say anything about that? 
Well, I mean, I kind of agree. Um, I'm not in favor of this paternalist, paternalistic attitude that says, well, listen, you know, the average investor is going to be worse off by actively trading stocks. So therefore we should um, try to prevent them from doing so or nudge them away from doing so. And so that's sort of your suggestion, Elizabeth, is that if you bring back sort of the, the standard, you know, broker commission, um, that they'd be forced to sort of internalize the cost of their trading um, and therefore do less of it. But if you actually want to trade, there's no doubt that the free commission model makes you better off. I mean, so payment for order flow, I mean, I do see problems with it, um, but at the end of the day for a retail trader, you know, you're losing fractions of a penny, right? As opposed to having to pay five, seven, $10, whatever it used to be on, um, on trading commissions. And so I guess I'm disinclined to say, well, let's bring that back because, you know, people are dumb and they're gonna lose money. So, they're, so therefore, um, you know, commissions and, and don't do it. Um, so I, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm generally agreement with the, with the student. I mean, people should be allowed to do dumb things provided it doesn't have externalities that affect the rest of us. And I think that's kind of where we're at with this is, um, you know, does this pose a systemic risk? Does what happened last week threaten the broader market in the broader economy? And I've, and I've gone back and forth on this and I just, don't see it. I honestly think when we look back a year from now at Robinhood, we'll just kind of have a chuckle um, and there really won't have been any sort of lasting either regulatory changes or, or consequences to the market because I just, at the end of the day, it's an interesting story, but I'm not very concerned about it. So you think the meme stock trading is is not a here to stay, or at least, you know, it, it will pop up every once in a while and make a splash, but not fundamentally change the, the course of the market? No, because people are going to lose money, you know, and you, and you, you learn from your mistakes. I mean, at the end of the day, well, do we? huh? I said, do we? Well, maybe not collectively, but certainly yeah, not collectively, not collectively, but certainly um, an individual who jumped in when Ron, when GameStop was going up last week um, is doing very poorly now. And I would imagine they feel pretty chastened by the experience. Um, so Ryan Clements, I'm sorry to call you out, but you had some very interesting comments in the chat and uh, was wondering if I could encourage you to <clears throat> ask them out loud. Yeah, absolutely. I tried to turn on my camera, uh, but it's not working. I, I just wonder about the price of volatility and the impact of distributive profits, because it's easy to say that this is a social movement, but when we really look at the social movement. I'm curious of what the result of this social movement is, because it appears to me that the benefactor, at least financially, is actually the 1% in form of distributive profits. So Robinhood benefits when more people trade, untethered from fundamental information. Citadel profits through the bid-ask spread and all the market makers profit. The hedge funds seem to be profiting. Matt Levine had an interesting piece on that this morning, who I don't think is profiting likely other than a few idiosyncratic traders like uh, Roaring Kitty are everyone else who's interfacing with the market. And, and I know this paternalism dynamic is, is uh, um, controversial, but it seems like this is a mechanism for a distributive profit away from Wall Street, or sorry, away from Main Street to Wall Street. And so what is the actual effect of this social movement? It doesn't seem to be working very well, other than, than distributing Main Street's money to Wall Street. Right. And the, the hedge funds are busy scraping Reddit right now and, and doing momentum trades based on the sentiment that they see there, yeah. And let me just, Elizabeth, jump in on, on Ryan's point. I mean, this whole notion, this David versus Goliath frame, as Ryan pointed out, is absolutely wrong. I mean, one thing is for certain that we're just scratching the surface in terms of what we know about what happened in terms of trading behavior uh, last week. Whenever there's these big market movements, whether it be you know the flash crash in 2010 or even when oil went negative um, you know, last spring, the initial narrative is normally almost always wrong. So I'm sure we're gonna hear more stories as, as Matt Levine and the Wall Street Journal had a front page story uh, today about how some hedge fund 
um, you know, rode the, the wave up and made $700 million on the, the GameStop trade. So the, the, yeah, the social, Ryan's right, the social movement is not working for the Reddit crowd. And if you really want to stick it to Wall Street, you know, call your representative and argue for a, a financial transactions tax or a return of Glass-Steagall, right? I mean, it's good old fashioned democratic politics is what's gonna, um, you know, bring about real change, not, you know, trying to beat Wall Street at their own game, which everyone will is destined to fail at. Yeah. Should we, we are well over our time, but if we have a final student question, does anyone want to jump in and ask? Uh, so somebody asked, several people actually have asked whether Robinhood is in trouble. So whether they in fact can be sued um, either by class action by the, the Robinhood traders or by enforcement by the SEC for stopping the trading. What, what is the sort of threshold there? Do they make, get to make discretionary decisions about when to halt trading or do they actually have objective triggers for that that they disclose and have to abide by? Jim, do you want to say something about that? You know, I'm just going to speculate something else. I, 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 I think the answer is that, that you know, Lee would have a better idea about what, what the triggers are for clearing. But let me ask you a question here. We're talking about the social cost of this thing. What would have happened? What would our conversation have been if Robinhood hadn't been able to raise $3 billion to cover the, the, the position that was being going to close out? What kind of, what, what would we be talking about then? Okay, uh, uh, would it be the same conversation? I don't think so. So I, th I think that, that you know more than just saying boys will be boys uh, and thinking that this is just going to be episodic and uh, it's going to pass. There's a there's a big problem here. We you know we may have dodged a bullet. I don't know. So I I think there's a big question here about uh, our markets, and it may be that we want to have a trans Tobin's tax and and charge commissions. But we may also want to add to that and find something that's needed is they may want to have a Tobin tax that's also on the hedge funds for algorithmic traders. Okay. Um, that's a bigger question. Right. And never forget the size of the volumes that vastly outweigh the retail traders, including with GameStop. The dark, the dark trading and after hours trading, yep. which retail uh, traders have no access. They dwarf all of this. So Absolutely. that's where, you know, I think you're right. That's where you've got to start looking at things like tax. This, this is a huge question. And, you know, I think we're making some, starting to make some progress on that. So, All right. We, we definitely should stop now. There is far too much to talk about um, and would, would love to keep the conversation going with everybody, either formally or informally. So thank you to the Global Financial Market Center and the Interactive Entertainment Law Center at Society. I, I too get nostalgic about video games, but for me, it's the consoles from the 1980s. You know, I'm thinking uh. Atari. So goodbye, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit Duke Law on the web at law.com dot duke dot edu